I'm happy to be here. Uh, for those of you who have not met me before, uh, my name is Peter Moroni. I'm the executive chairman and founder uh, of Yamana Gold. Yamana is listed on the London, New York, and Toronto Stock Exchange. We're very liquid, and we are, uh, by all estimations, a, a significant company with a production platform of roughly 1 million ounces with significant growth on top of that million. Last year, we produced just over a million ounces. The actual number is a million and 11,000 ounces. We treat silver as a gold equivalent. And so while we produce about nine to 10 million ounces of silver per year, that comes from two of our mines that produce gold and silver. On a gold equivalency basis, using a realized ratio of gold price to silver price, it's just over a million ounces. And as I say, a little bit more than that in 2021. And we're projecting to get to above that number this year with some growth on top of that. I think it's important to mention that it's not just about, about um, the production level, it's also about the costs. Uh, we try to emphasize three different measures of costs, uh, operating costs, all-in sustaining costs, and, and cost of sales. The one that is most relevant is all-in sustaining costs. It includes uh, our operating costs. It also includes sustaining capital, GNA, and exploration expenses. And last, we, you know, last year, we produced every ounce of gold at just over $1,030 per ounce. And we're very comfortable saying that we are within an order of magnitude of that this year. A little bit less production this year, at least based on our guidance as compared to last year. And that puts our all-in costs in the range of about $1,080 per ounce. And I'm very happy to report, Matt, that in the first quarter of this year, we produced about 238,000 ounces. And we did all of that at $1,084 per ounce on an all-in sustaining cost basis. And that was slightly better than budget on production and better than budget on costs. Peter, good to have you back. Uh, no, th thanks for that kind of summary of, of, of some of the targets you set yourselves and uh, that you've managed to achieve in 2021. Um, I thought we had a great conversation last August. Uh, I learned a lot about larger companies. I think one of the accusations I think thrown at larger companies, certainly by myself, is that it gets to a point where it's harder to tell the growth story. You're bucking the trend there um, somewhat. Um, I think share price four fifteen when we spoke last, and you're, you're you know you're up um, around about four four forty five um, as we talked today. So um, congrats on last year. But I'm, I'm kind of want to dig into it a little bit with you and try and understand why it worked. Okay, you talked about um, your strategy with me last year. Were there any parts of the way you went about it, the way you went about business, whether it be through the organic growth component or cost cutting exercises, which helped you more than others in an environment where costs were rising, gold price, uh, silver price were not rising? So, what, what, what worked and what didn't? Well, I think a starting point is ultimately we do have to come back to the conversation about margins. It would be pretending to say that there we're not into an inflationary period worldwide on all things. And so, of course, there is a, if not an inevitability, certainly there is a possibility that that will have an impact on all businesses. And that includes, of course, businesses that are in, that, uh, such as ours that are mining for precious metals. Uh, but I think we need to, to be considerate of the fact that it is about margins rather than only what is the price. Gold price, as an example, was up more than $40 per ounce in the first quarter of this year by comparison to our budget. And if I recollect correctly, more than that to the average of last year. Our costs were up a little bit over the first quarter 
this year by comparison to the first quarter last year and the fourth quarter last year. But equally, our margins improved. And I think it really is about margins rather than it is about the, the raw, what is the number uh, uh, of dollars that it costs to produce every ounce of gold that we produce. But having said that, I think there are opportunities to compress costs, opportunities to put a lid on them, so that even if we're in a world of escalating costs, uh, we can provide some control over that. What do I mean by that? Being in the right jurisdiction counts for a lot. So being in mining-friendly jurisdictions, and what I mean by mining-friendly is rules-based, where there's a pedigree for mining, uh, where there is uh, availability of power, and that availability of power comes from sources that are comparatively inexpensive, uh, where there is, a, is a, a labor that is experienced labor, where one is not at risk when it comes to permitting because you know what you have to do in order to get permitted, and where there are Indigenous industries that are supporting the mining industry vis-a-vis uh, -vis consumables and the like. And so when we start from that premise, and we at Yamana are in four jurisdictions in the Americas, as you may recollect, so Canada, Brazil, Argentina, and Chile, these are mining pedigree, mining-friendly jurisdictions. Uh, overwhelmingly, certainly in most of those jurisdictions, uh, there are indigenous industries, as I mentioned, that um, support the mining industry. And so we have multiple sources of places to buy uh, steel for our mills, uh, ball, steel balls for our mills, uh, to buy other consumables such as cyanide. And, and coming back to the important point of power, there is also the availability of power, and that power is being generated by comparatively inexpensive sources. One final comment, which is this. If I took power, which is about 5% of our costs, fuel, another 5% of our costs, so clearly we need to be sensitive to diesel prices, which have and can continue to be, have gone up and continue to be uh, at risk of going higher. Uh, we also need to be sensitive to the fact that the overwhelming the largest component of our costs is labor. Uh, and again, when, if we have experienced labor, uh, and if we're in jurisdictions where it is likely that the currency will devalue to the US dollar, uh, where we can hedge some of that currency exposure, uh, then we're in a, in, a, in a better position, I believe, than most other companies. And our labor costs, if I take direct labor, those who we employ, and of course, contractor labor, those who we employ as contractors, but taking that into account, it represents about 45, 46% of our cost construct. And so uh, we look at it more from the lens. Let's make sure that we have uh, control over um, the currencies in the countries in which we operate rather than uh, anything else. See, that, that's interesting. You've touched upon multiple points there, which I've written down. Um, your this is no longer a question of can these guys mine. It's a question of how they choose how they choose to mine. And then you've you've gone through the you know a, a checklist of well how, how do we make sure that the margins you know stay healthy in an environment where perhaps we're slightly out of control of some of some of the elements that you put yourself in the, in the best position to succeed. Now one one you know and I'm not going to talk about inflationary costs and you you may want to touch upon it yourself but um I, I want to come at it from the point of view that in some of these countries, it's been difficult to do the business of mining. The thing, very thing that I said, I'm not going to judge you on that because you proved that you can. 
But last year, was, with a different set of rules applied, COVID was still impacting us through supply chain issues, yes, in, in inflationary costs, but also access to people and people's access to you know, work at the mines that you had. So I'm intrigued by how you still managed to deliver the numbers that you did. How did you mitigate some of those components? Well, we, we're not in the business, we're in the business of mining, but the business of mining is risk mitigation. And part of risk mitigation is ensuring that uh, we take care of the health and safety aspects of workers. So we provide health and safety equipment that includes respiratory equipment. So while we could not have, as a world, and certainly a company in our industry, have anticipated COVID, um, we were certainly ready uh, for what we had to do to protect individuals uh, so that we were not creating infection situations. We were also uh, at the forefront of of looking for um, ways in which our workforces could be vaccinated. So yes, in 2020, um, at, at the start of the pandemic, there were, were some impacts. The impacts were mostly the result of what we had to do to quarantine during periods of time when we were bringing uh, labor forces in for a shift and then removing labor forces uh, out of a shift. Uh, but by 2021, we'd reached a point where we had that well in hand. Uh, we knew what the cost was in order to create distancing. Uh, we were blessed in many respects because we were jurisdictions <clears throat> where we, we could distance. Uh, in some of our mines, people uh, come to mine site uh, with their own transportation, where we had to uh, bring people by our own by transportation, for example, busing uh, of a workforce. We had to create the proper distancing, the proper protocols. But once those were in place, and once we had those quarantines, quarantine protocols in place, then it became just a routine. And what's happened since then, as 2021 evolved, as we came through that second half of 21, and we said that last year, we'd said first half a little bit more challenging, second half becomes a little bit easier. We'd gotten to a point where overwhelmingly our workforce was was vaccinated. We had all of these protocols in place. This was the new normal in terms of the protocols. And so we adapted and our workforces adapted to that new normal. Uh, And we were in a a very good position by the end of the year uh, to have mitigated all of the impacts arising from COVID-19. Now, as we come into 2022 uh, with vaccinations at almost 100% levels at all of our operations, and with those protocols, health and safety protocols still in place. Uh, and that, of course, includes not only distancing, but providing respiratory equipment, which we normally would do in a mine anyway. Then it becomes substantially easier uh, to, to say this is what we expect from a production and from a cost point of view. We're back to a, a respectable normal, if I can describe it that way. Yes, but the, 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 the environment and the narrative and the conversation globally seems to have changed somewhat. We, we do get a bit of pushback whenever we talk about ESG or wherever, whether we talk about carbon credits, because to, to some parts of the market, it seems a very sort of synthetic overlay, which has come out of the, the, the COVID situation, right? And so I'm, I, again, I want to ask you as a company, which, which is calmly working through some of the issues, like what is the significance and importance of ESG in mining? Is it synthetic? Is it essential, um, you know, for, for the for the industry to evolve and, and develop? I mean, and how does it affect? How do those things affect your business? You've talked about some of the things that you're doing naturally, but 
um, it feels it, for some people it feels force. You know, funds are forcing us upon the, the sector. I, I think that that um, doesn't fully characterize the situation, Matt. Uh, I took this company public roughly 19 years ago in 2003, and a ten- tenant of mine, and I don't believe it's only particular to me. I think it's particular certainly to the gold mining industry, all of the peers with whom I speak have a fundamental solid understanding of this. We promote health, safety, environmental compliance and and support and community support. We promote that from the very beginning. Uh, I've been very clear and I, again, I don't think I'm an aberration. I think I'm one of many in our industry that believes that profitability goes hand in glove with making sure that we're taking care of the health and safety of workers and local communities, where we recognize that we are guests uh, in these host communities, and we can have a good uh, a dialogue with local communities on what they care about as it relates to the environment and what they care about in the broader sense of community. Uh, and so we've been very responsive to that and very, been very successful. That hasn't been mandated on us. It's not because investors have said, this is what we want you to do. We've done it because it is normal and hand in glove with creating profitability. No one has invented the technology to say, we're going to take an ore body and teleport it somewhere else. And and given that, it becomes almost an inevitability to say that we have to be respectful of local environment, respectful of community, respectful of health and safety of workers, and respectful of health and safety of workers, families, and and the broader community. What has changed is the translation of local environmental compliance and environmental concern to the broader globe. And that really relates to climate action. And so that's something that investors have said, we are asking companies in many respects, not only asking, but insisting companies to do their part to protect the broader global environment in the context of climate action. But the rest of it we were already doing and transitioning to this climate action then almost feels as if it's a natural, ordinary course evolution. It's not revolutionary for us. It's evolutionary to say, yes, if we're respectful of the local environment, and these are the reasons why, that hand in glove that I described with profitability, then one inevitably comes to the conclusion that respectful of the broader environment, as it relates to the, to, to the earth generally, that means that we're likely going to be more profitable if we can take care of that business. And on that side of it, Uh, In 2021, we said by the end of year, we're going to be in a position to say that this is what we will do to get to the aspirational goal of net zero by 2050 and to get to a a temperature increase of no higher than 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, by comparison to pre-industrial levels, no later than 2030. And we've now uh, published a full report that says these are the actions that we're taking. And these are the mitigation steps that we're required to take. And if I may, uh, those mitigation steps are comparatively, uh, it's interesting because they're, they're, in some respects, they're, 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 they're almost natural to what we do. I was going to say comparatively easy and nothing is really easy in mining, uh, but it's easy to understand. Uh, so uh, by changing the hauling methodology at our Jacobina mine, uh, by entering into power purchase agreements at our Minera Florida mine, where the power is coming from renewable sources. And then the, 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 um, the piece de resistance, the, the best of the bunch, is by going to wind power at our Cerro Moro mine. Cerro Moro is in an area of South America that is one of the windiest 
uh, in the world, and it's consistent. And so we've done a considerable amount of study on reliance on wind power. So going to between 25% and 50% wind power generation by comparison to what we're doing now, which is diesel, achieves several objectives. One is it brings us to that goal of 1.5 degrees well before 2030. So we're already in the process now of going through feasibility study. We have a good sense of what we need. And we're now going through the contracting process uh, of hiring, of, of buying equipment so that we can go through that uh, wind turbine installation. But this is where I think the rubber hits the road on the wind winds that we need to be sensitive to. By going to wind power at Cerro Moro, we, we do our part to help the climate action um, events taking place in the world. But in addition to that, we also reduce our overall costs. And then it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because by reducing our costs, we can reduce our cutoff grade. And by reducing our cutoff grade, we can then block and tackle different areas for exploration that would normally not meet the cutoff grade for reserves because we can lower that cutoff grade and it means that the profitability of the mine is still the same. We can find more ounces. We may be able to find more ounces at lower grade that delivers the same type of production and the same type of cash flow uh, at lower costs. That's what I mean by that win-win scenario. No, that, 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 that's really interesting, actually. It, it does make people um, think it doesn't have to cost more. It can actually be a cost savings and, and kind, of, kind of free up the, the project somewhat. I, I appreciate that. And that's subject dear to your heart with, with regards to the, um, the, the environmental and the, and the ESG component. Um, and I, I know you brought out quite a few uh, good points. You make points well understood. I, what, I, what I want to come back to is in terms of the changing mindset uh, uh, for investors about mining. Yes, mining needs to be more responsible and, 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 and held accountable, and it needs to do things the right way. And you've outlined how your company is, is doing that. Do, and you're not, and I take the point, you're not, you're being mandated by the, the, the funds or institutions to do this. You are, you are doing this anyway. But there is a kind of drive and a push. Um, you know, a lot of funds have rebranded themselves ESG. Well, added ESG to the title in some in the nomenclature in, in some way, shape, or form. It, you you were saying to me, it's a real thing. It's important. The industry is taking it on board, and the funds do mean it. it's not a tick box exercise. Yes. So so um, uh, I, I think the heart of the question is um, the relevance of mining in the context of an ESG world. And, and I want to start with, this is not intended to be glib. It is important that we do our part as a company, as individuals, and as an industry, and more broadly, to make sure that we protect, this is the one and only planet we have. And I appreciate many talking about how we're going to go to this other planet and here and there. But the truth is, right now, this is a planet that we have, and this is likely the planet that our children and our children's children will have. So we have to do our part to protect it. But the gold mining industry, if we look at all greenhouse gas emissions, the totality of the gold mining industry represents probably 2 to 3% of total global emissions. It's not a big um, um, contribution to the greenhouse gas emissions uh, that are taking place. Uh, so let's look at it um, more granularly. And again, I hope my, my information is still current. But the last time I checked this, uh, we as a mid-tier uh, size company generate a certain amount of greenhouse gas emissions. 
Uh, we take, we're taking steps and we, we have taken steps to mitigate that. But if I looked at an average airline, an average airline generates about 14 times the emissions that we generate. So I think the starting point on the part of all of us should be to say we should all be doing our part. But in addition to that, to that we should also be looking at those industries that are greater contributors to greenhouse gas emissions uh, and, and starting our focus there rather than on industries where the greenhouse gas emissions is less. You mentioned also the relevance uh, of mining. Well, we produce silver. We have an asset that produces copper. If we are to go green in the world, we will need silver and we will need copper. Uh, gold perhaps has a lesser function in a green world, but it would be disingenuous to look at it and say, well, it doesn't serve a purpose. Uh, gold has served a purpose for thousands of years. Uh, and there are many cultures, we in the Western world, in Europe, in the Americas, have a certain view and predisposition. But there are parts of the world where uh, precious metals uh, is important, culturally important. And I think the other thing that is relevant here, Matt, is it is not only about uh, the, the climate issues, it is also about lifting people out of poverty. And I'm not an expert on these things, but it is very apparent to me as an executive of this company, as a founder of this company, as a participant in this industry, and as a participant in the mining industry more generally, in the extractive industries more generally, that the best way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions over the intermediate and longer term is to lift more and more people out of poverty. And if we can provide them with jobs and job security and education to their themselves and to their children and their children's children, then we will be doing more than our fair share, more than our part of, of lifting people out of poverty. And in taking that action, we'll also be doing more than our fair share in terms of ensuring that when we talk about uh, greenhouse gas emissions, we're reducing those greenhouse gas emissions in, in these places where that poverty exists. Okay. And, and talking of lifting people out of poverty, we've got the South America actually kind of raised its head last year in terms of socialism. We saw Mexico recently um, you know, go through the process of nationalizing lithium assets. It, it's, and, and, and obviously, you know, that's very topical around, uh, you know, when people are electioneering, um, but it, it, underpinning it is this desire for perhaps countries to maybe capture more, more of the wealth. Um, what do miners like you do? You, you operate in some of those countries. You've been, you know, listening in. I'm sure intently on some of those conversations, some of those that electioneering. Um, where where does this go for miners? You know, are are they able to influence, or is it a case of you know hoping for the best? In the jurisdictions in which we operate, the four countries in which we operate, I think this is true of other countries in the Americas. Uh, I think that there is a recognition uh, of. The, the line to be drawn and where that line should be that allows a company to do its part, allows a company to remain profitable, to be able to deliver cash flow and profitability to its stakeholders who are investors, while at the same time also giving back to the local community and to the broader uh, provincial or state or national communities. Um, that line can move from time to time, but it moves in increments. It doesn't move radically. Uh, in the countries in which we operate, uh, I can't pretend that, that there isn't the risk of increases in royalties and other amounts, other stipends that are paid to local communities or that are paid to provinces or states or national government. Uh, 
but it does appear as if there's a recognition that it cannot be something that is severe, something that is extreme. As I described it a few moments ago, it's incremental. And that seems to be uh, the, the, the path forward. Yes, admittedly, there will be headlines from time to time, nationalization of this and nationalization of that. But the reality is that overwhelmingly in these countries, the majority of people are center left and center right. And, and they are, are looking at the bread and butter issues. And looking at the bread and butter issues, uh, they are far more sensitive, I think, uh, to the fact that, uh, if I could describe it this way, one can't choke the goose that lays the golden egg. Uh, and and by, by putting in extreme measures uh, and extreme royalties or other similar types of taxes, uh, it chokes off uh, investment. And in the countries in which we operate, Brazil is an excellent example of that. Uh, in Brazil, there's, a, there's a, a strong paradigm of push and pull amongst different um, um, segments of, of uh, their, their uh, uh, society on what is fair. But all of it is, as I say, it's incremental, Matt. And in addition to that, they learned decades ago that if you take an extreme action, it chokes off investment. And that's not good for the country. It's not good for your people. It's not good for that employment issue that I raised uh, a few moments ago and the beneficiation of communities that, that need it. Uh, and so they're very sensitive to that and they're very responsible as a result of that. So I would encourage everyone to say, um, there will be headlines from time to time. Let's not focus on the headlines, let's focus on the actions. And the actions appear to suggest that these countries have a strong understanding of the incremental needs rather than the radical needs. I get that you guys can be a much more efficient miner than perhaps a, a, a nationalized business, potentially, right? So you, you, I'm sure you'd argue that. Um, but, and you, you know, you don't want to you know, kill the goose that lays the golden egg, et cetera. But, you know, Mexico made a kind of pretty big and bold move. It wasn't just a headline. It was, it was a big move on, on lithium and trying to you know, nationalize lithium. That's going to put off foreign direct investors, like you say. Um, what does it do for your thinking? And I don't mean you to put a shot across the bows here, um, but just what does it do for your thinking at board level um, when you see moves like that? Does it change your view of jurisdictional risk? Uh, and in the context of activism, NGOs, um, you know, First Nation issues around the world, is there such thing as a tier one jurisdiction anymore? It would change my view if I were in a country where the, um, where, where the contribution to the company and the contribution to the, the society at large were not properly balanced. Uh, and I can't speak to, the, to Mexico, we're not there, and I can't speak to other countries. But what I can say is in the countries in which we operate, that balance is there and that understanding that there needs to be a balance is there. And that's what leads me to conclude that if there's any change at all, and I'm not saying there will be, in Brazil, there's been discussion about changing royalties now for the better part of the last maybe five or six years, and it hasn't happened because there are different groups, not just mining group, but different groups, state senators, um, local governors that, that take certain views that may or may not be the same as a national government. And so the point here is that... Um, there, there is uh, a balance in these countries in which we are operating. And if there is any change at all, it will be incremental. And even that 
that will take a long time to implement. Right. Okay. So there's so the market should not be nervous of the the. Well, like I said, it's headlines. I was going to say sentiment, but it's not sentiment. It's it's, it's headlines. Um, okay. Well, you are uh, you are aware that that the country of Chile is is going through a yeah. constitutional assembly. Absolutely. They're yeah. updating their constitution that goes back to the eighties, uh, and you are aware of the headlines. Some of the headlines have talked about the nationalization of this metal and that, this mineral and that mineral. And yeah, we've, interestingly, we've written about that. Yeah. Yes, and, and as you are aware, uh, that was coming from certain subcommittees of the broader assembly. And literally, as of yesterday, the broader assembly voted overwhelmingly against those changes because they came to the conclusion that that would not pass muster with the broader uh, uh, population. I, I, I also note that if they can't, if there's no um, agreement on the new constitution, they'll revert back to the old. Constitution. So, so, so that, that, I just wanted you to address it because you're in country, you're, you're dealing with these things. And, you know, we've tried our best to try and understand it and speak to, you know, politicians and lawyers and journalists in country to talk about the reality of it. But um, unfortunately, you know, we're in, a, we're in a world where people can react to headlines. Um, but no, thanks for clearing that up. I'm um, just going to get conscious of time here because I always enjoy these conversations with you. Um, Going back to risk mitigation, which is the nature of mining, as you described, your focus on responsible growth. Um, can you just, just be really clear about what, what that means for the rest of 2022 and in, and, and the next couple of years? Because you, you, you've always been um, good at talking to me about you know, return on investment and um, you know, cost of capital. Um, and and uh, and and I get you're sort of, you know you're, you're not much debt in there, and you're throwing off cash. And so, what do, what does that look like for you in terms of the growth components of the story, and also things like dividends for 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 retail investors looking in here? And like I say, you're you're up over twenty five percent since we spoke in, in August. You know, the future looks strong for you, or is, do, you, do you see strong headwinds? Um, you know, and perhaps having to adjust accordingly. Well, what an excellent question. And let me try to unpackage some parts of that because you're absolutely correct. When I use the term responsible growth, there are many components in it. But while we are focused on growth in this conversation, we cannot overlook that we have a capital allocation strategy and that capital allocation strategy, we're unwavering on what we do in that. And as you are aware, our capital allocation strategy has three equal weighted priorities making sure that the balance sheet is resilient and very, very strong. We can check that box, making sure that we pay a dividend and have the opportunity to increase that dividend. Again, we've increased our dividend from the beginning of 2019 to present day by a full uh, 500%. And we've paid, we're a roughly five, $6 billion company, but we've paid 1.1 billion in dividends since late 2006. So we've certainly punched above our weight class when it comes to the dividends and cash returns to investors. And on the growth side, the way that we look at it is we have to be able to deliver returns and we have to be able to say that the company has been improved as a result of these actions. More recently, literally over the course of the last month or so, uh, we said we've, we've come up with a further narrative to our capital allocation strategy. We've indicated that we don't expect to have more than $150 per ounce in sustaining capital. That sustaining capital is critical to making sure that we have long-lived assets. 
We also indicated that our growth capex is not expected to be more than 175 million, an average of 175 million per year during this guidance period of three years, 2022, 23, and 2024. And that gets us to that production level of 1.25 million ounces. And then we can go from there to 1.5 million ounces. So we are unwavering and fully resolved to making sure that when we talk about growth, we're not doing that at the expense of those other capital allocation priorities. And, And more recently, we've actually indicated that with cash balances of over $516 million, and we expect to generate between 50 and $100 million of excess cash above dividends, above the the growth capex, above sustaining capital uh, every year for the next few years, we've indicated that we will look at at the the cash return side of it, so the dividend side of it in particular, later this year, I expect by the middle of the year, because I think that we will find that we've reached a point that conservatively, uh, we're not only meeting the objectives of, of, of growth and the capital required for that, and our balance sheet, but we also have excess cash that allows us to be able to say that we can further increase that dividend above that 500% that we've already increased the dividend to present day. And and so I think that investors should be comforted that uh, we're in a very good position for that. Just a couple of other points that are relevant to that. We look at something else that's important. We look at uh, free cash flow conversion ratios. Our free cash flow compared to our cash flow and our free cash flow compared to revenue, we also look at it from the lens of on a per ounce basis. And we're amongst the best of peers when it comes to that free cash flow conversion. And what it means to simplify it is if we have a high free cash flow per ounce of gold that we produce, and last year for every ounce that we produced, we generated $325 of free cash flow. So for every ounce of gold that we produce, the more we can convert into free cash flow, from the cash flow that's generated from the sale of those, those precious metals ounces, the more we're in a position to say that we're going to be building up cash balances and we can fund everything else. And so that, that's important because we don't want to be in a position where we're funding growth at the expense of those other obligations. And fortunately, because of those high conversion ratios, uh, we're not. And finally, the other thing that we look at is that when we are investing back into the ground, I recognize that many investors look at it and say, I prefer you not to invest so much into the ground, give me more as a cash return. But we're giving more than our fair share as a cash return. That will continue to increase, as I mentioned a few moments ago. And in addition to that, what we are able to demonstrate is that we can actually improve the value of the company by that investment. So let's look at last year as an example. That likely will be true this year as well. We increased our proven and probable reserves. We increased our reserve grade uh, last year. Um, In the course of the last three years, we've increased our net asset value by more than 100%. So an asset like Jacobina in the last three years has gone from a net asset value in market of roughly 700 million to 1.7 billion today because of these improvements that we've made by spending some of that cash flow and reinvesting it back into into our assets. We've improved the life of mine of our assets and overall in the company. And those are some of the things that I think are are relevant and must be relevant. Because because at the end of the day, if we were doing that, and we were doing that at the expense of paying a dividend to investors, I I think that's problematic. But if we're able to do all of that and still have money left over, 
where we can afford to comfortably say that we, were, we are going to increase that dividend to investors, that puts us in a very good state. Peter, thank you for your time today. Thank you.